Well, a few weeks ago when we began this series, Jason asked a question that uh, I want to make sure, uh, I want to ask you again. In case you weren't here that, that Sunday, I want to make sure you catch it. And if you were here, I want you to hear that question one more time. So the question Jason asked was, does God still do miracles? And really, what the real question is this, do you, do you, do you, there we go. Do you believe that God still does miracles? That's really the question that we're wanting to know. And maybe your answer to that question reflects whether you believe that the Bible is true. So when we talk about these things that we're looking at in, in the Gospel of John, did any of them happen? I mean, is any of that real? Or, or if the Bible is true, the answer, your answer to this question reflects whether you believe God is still at work in our world today, at least in the way he was uh, in Scripture uh, on your notes should be this quote. Erwin Lutzer, in his book, Seven Convincing Miracles, wrote this. A popular but wrong definition is to say that a miracle is a point in time in which God intervenes in the world. He says the definition fails for one good reason. It gives the false impression that God only occasionally intervenes in the world. But a miracle happens when God, who is continuously active in the world, breaks his usual pattern and does something extraordinary because we believe that God is always at work in the world. He's involved in our lives, that he walks with us and guides us on a day-to-day -day basis, and occasionally he breaks his usual pattern. He does something extraordinary. As a matter of fact, when the Bible talks about it, sometimes talks, it calls the miracles of God, talks about it as the finger of God. At other times, uh, it talks about it as if the Lord's hand, as, as the Lord's hand. So the question is really, do you believe that God still has a hand in our world? Pun intended. So, the, so today, listen, uh, if God is at work in our world, that's the question. So back in 1953, uh, in Grimes, Iowa, Violet Cross was getting sicker. Every day she just seemed to get sicker, and her oldest son, Frank, insisted that she go to the doctor, and eventually they ended up at a large uh, teaching hospital in Iowa City. The diagnosis was devastating, because although Violet had never smoked a day in her life, she had lung cancer and was dying of lung cancer. One lung was already gone. The other was rapidly being devoured by the malignancy, and the doctors offered her no real hope. They said, you will have six months of pain, and then you'll die. Well, that Sunday, Violet went forward uh, for prayer at the church that her son-in-law pastored, where she went, Grimes Gospel Center, and she begged God for one thing. Her two youngest daughters, Kay and Linda, were still in high school, and she prayed, please, God, let me live long enough to see their graduation. Her husband, Eddie, bought her the engagement ring he couldn't afford 30 years earlier when they got married. Uh, he anticipated this would be one of his final acts of love toward her. And then Violet started getting better. And Kay graduated from high school. And then she went back to the farm and started doing chores again. And then Linda graduated from high school. And then both of them got married. And then grandchildren were born. In fact, 18 grandchildren were there to help Violet and Eddie celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. Her granddaughter said, in 1976, Violet came to live at my house after my grandfather, Eddie, passed away. When I was 12 years old, 38 years after the doctors had given her six months to live, Grandma Cross's two healthy lungs breathed their last. So do you believe that miracles still happen today? 
Uh, if this is your first Sunday with us, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor, and I uh, really appreciate you being here. I just want to say you have come at, like, the perfect time, and so I'm glad you're here today. And if you're watching online, thank you for joining us there. I hope that what we're talking about here over the next several weeks leading to Easter encourages your faith and helps you take your next step in uh, your faith journey. And if you live in the area, and if you're able to, I hope you'll join us uh, here on a Sunday morning uh, very soon. So we are looking at the miracles that John records in the gospel. Uh, there are seven of them, seven miracles that John records, and we're not merely looking at them. I've said this before. I want to make sure we get this. We're not looking at them merely to learn about what Jesus has done. We're looking at these to remind us of what Jesus is still able to do in our lives today. So there's this passage that we've reminded you of every week so far uh, from John chapter 20 toward the end of his gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. In other words, John is telling you the seven he's talked about aren't the only ones Jesus did. All right. But these are written. We're telling you about these so that you may believe. And this is why we're talking about miracles. Even in our lives today, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing, you may, have, uh, you may have life in his name. This isn't just about miracles. This is about what miracles, believing, them, understanding, and knowing that Jesus still does these uh, in our world today, what this does in our own life. So today, if you have your Bibles, or if you're on the version on your phone, we are in John chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 1. Uh, there are notes. Uh, on a handout that you're given that might be helpful. Also, if you're on the U version, those notes are already there and waiting for you. Uh, so, Mark chapter or John chapter five. <laughs> We're doing the seven miracles in the Gospel of John. Turn to Mark. Uh, John chapter five, uh, beginning in verse one. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five color, uh, covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, uh, the lame, the paralyzed. One uh, who was, uh, had been there, uh, been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? The invalid said, sir, I, I don't have anyone to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. Now Jesus and his disciples have been in Galilee and the trip to Jerusalem was about 80 miles. Verse 1 tells us that he's going up for one of the feasts of the Jews. And we don't know which one. The Old Testament requires that every male adult who lives within 15 miles of Jerusalem, that there were three major feasts they had to attend. It was required of them. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. We're not told which feast it was. It may have been one of the three major ones, or it may have been one of the other feasts on the calendar. Because one of the things we know when you read this gospel is that Jesus did not consider this uh, to be a duty that he had to perform. He loved to go and worship uh, with the Israelites. Jerusalem was a large city. Verse 2 says Jesus entered by the Sheep Gate, which probably doesn't mean anything to most of us in the room. But if you're coming in from the north, the Sheep Gate was the major entryway into Jerusalem. And John points out this particular gate so they, they could identify where in the city he's talking about. Because by that gate was this pool that they called Bethesda. Archaeologists believe that they have discovered uh, the ancient pool of Bethesda, it's located near the Sheep Gate. And if you go to Israel today, 
you will see the Church of St. Anne uh, next to this large excavation area where, again, the archaeologists believe this is the Pool of Bethesda. Actually, two pools, really big, 360 feet long, 130 feet wide, 75 feet deep. It really had no shallow end. There were five covered porches built around this pool that provided shade uh, from the sun, and it was a natural gathering place in first century Israel. But not just everybody hung out here. John tells us that it was the sick people who hung out there, people who were paralyzed, people who were lame, people who were blind. And verse 5 introduces us to a man who had a handicapped parking permit hanging in his window. Right? Did you see for how long? 38 years. He'd had a reserve spot at the Pool of Bethesda for 38 years, day in and day out. He begged for money. It was rare that people made eye contact with him, right? Same today. Someone's asking for stuff on the corners. We don't make eye contact. Uh, even more rare, they gave him a handout. But one thing kept him coming back. One thing kept his hopes alive. And I don't know if you noticed this or not, but when we were reading, we didn't read verse 4. You may not have check your Bibles just to make sure I'm telling you the truth. Take a look at your Bibles. There isn't a, a verse 4, uh, but there most likely is a footnote in your Bible uh, that says some manuscripts include here verses 3 and 4, and it says that because verse 4 is not found in the earliest and most accurate manuscripts of the Gospel of John. It's likely that John knew about the beliefs of the waters there at Bethesda, but he chose for some reason to leave it out. And by excluding the popular belief about the angel, John focuses his readers, because you're not reading about that, now he'll focus you on the healer who was present, whose name is Jesus. But so we get it. This is where it ends in your Bible, paralyzed, and they waited for the moving of the waters. And verse 4 tells us that there was this legend about this pool, that this was a place of healing. And legend had it that God would send an angel who would stir the water, some believed, with the tip of its wing. And when the waters were stirred, the first one in the pool would be healed. So it is no wonder a great number of those who were paralyzed and those who were lame and those who were blind would find themselves around this pool. Because today, if you had cancer, if you had AIDS, if you had uh, cystic fibrosis, if you had some incurable disease and you heard about this pool, would you not go to it if you thought there was a chance? History tells us that hundreds of people would gather around this pool. Kind of like there are places today that people do this. Lords uh, in the south of France, people believe that the waters there are engaged by God and have healing power. The Shrine of Guadalupe outside of Mexico City. Thousands and thousands of crutches are stacked against the wall. And so Bethesda in that day had this sort of allure as a healing point. But we want to stop for just a moment uh, because I want to point something out. It begs a question, and it's in your notes because I want to make sure you get this. There's a difference between can God and does God, correct? Can God and does God. Could God have healed people at the pool with the stirring of the waters? And does God heal people? Did he heal them? Can God do it this way? Absolutely. God can do whatever he wants to do. In my daily chair time with God, I've been reading this year uh, out of the New Living Translation. In Psalm 115, verse 3, I read this, that our God is in the heavens and he does as he wishes. Of course, he gets to do whatever he wants. The question is, does he always do everything? 
Again, I wonder if John didn't include this information because he didn't want to pass on this urban legend. Because the fact is, the water moved because there's this intermittent spring uh, that came from some hidden reservoirs in the hills surrounding Jerusalem. And every now and then, those hidden reservoirs would release water in the surge, and it would hit these pools with a lot of turbulence, and they would rise very quickly, and then they would drop very quickly. And like a bad scene, hundreds of invalids would creep and crawl and claw their way into the water, hoping they would be the first ones there. But the tragedy, the true tragedy, is that it wasn't even true, right? It didn't matter whether they were first in or last. It was this false hope based on a false assumption. Before we roll our eyes at the silliness of it, who among us here wears their lucky jersey on game day? Because you know if you don't wear your lucky jersey, your team doesn't have a chance, right? Who of us here plays the lottery on their birthday? Who is keenly aware and a little cautious on Friday the 13th? And just so you know, the people around you are rolling your, uh, their eyes at your, your silliness, <laughs> hoping you won't find out what their silliness is. Because we all have these pet superstitions. On your notes, the opposite of belief isn't just unbelief, it's false belief. So this invalid's greatest handicap wasn't physical. It was this the most debilitating handicap was this mental, this false assumption that he needed to be the first one into the pool when the water was stirred. And I just want to say, this can be a barrier to Jesus doing a miracle in your life. It, false hope. If you think help is coming from someplace where it's just not going to, that can be a barrier. And, we, and when, when, when that is true in our lives, we keep making the same mistake over and over and over. And all of us as followers of Jesus need someone in our lives who has been given permission to look us in the eyes and say, how's that working for you? How's that going? It hasn't worked yet. Do you want to keep doing the same old thing? As a matter of fact, if I want God to do a new thing, I need to stop doing the same old thing. If I want a different result, I may need to try something new. In November 2004, there was a group of uh, medical researchers, elite medical researchers, practitioners, who convened for a closed-door uh, conference at the Rockefeller University in New York City. The goal of the gathering was to get the most brilliant thinkers uh, from around the world in one room to tackle the healthcare crisis. And the outcome of the meetings was both simultaneously encouraging and discouraging. It was encouraging because most health problems are not caused by factors beyond our control. That's the encouraging part. It's also the discouraging part. Because <laughs> those things which have negative impacts on us are not caused by factors beyond our control. The experts concluded that they could not fix our problems for us but we can. Unfortunately, we choose not to. And I don't know if you've read this, but study after study identifies five behavioral issues that cause 90%, uh, 80% of all of our health problems. Anybody surprised? Too much eating, too much drinking, too much smoking, too much stress, not enough exercise. All the surprised people raise your hand, right? We, we know this. And with some minor changes, we could solve most of our major health problems, but we don't want to, right? How many of you know someone who has undergone a coronary bypass surgery? More than a million and a half Americans undergo angioplasty every year, and it effectively relieves the symptoms of clogged arteries. But patients are told this. I had a friend who was told this. This is a temporary fix. Without a change in your eating, 
and, and your uh, exercise habits, the health benefits of this procedure will be short-lived. Have you heard that? And doctors will tell you, if the numbers are right, 9 out of 10 people after coronary artery bypass graft, two years later, 90% of them have not changed their lifestyle, which means after having bypass surgery, 9 out of 10 people would rather risk getting sick again than change their behavior. On your notes, you cannot help someone who doesn't want help no matter how badly they need it. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us how it happened. It may have been a dearth a birth defect, may have been a genetic condition or a freak accident, but this invalid has not stood on his own two feet in nearly four decades. And he went through the same routine day after day. And while it may seem monotonous to us, I bet it seemed pretty safe to him. Uh, his map may have been his security blanket. And this question may get to some deep-seated issues because getting well meant getting a job. And getting well meant actually using his healed legs. And getting well meant having a different level of responsibility now to society. And verse 5 says that one was there who had been an invalid for a long time. How long? 38 years. And we don't even know how old this man is. We don't know how, you know, how old he was when he became an invalid. But what we know is he's been paralyzed for 38 years. So on your notes, your next step, listen, could be wrapped up in this because 38 years can become a barrier to Jesus' miracles. This in and of itself could become a barrier because when Jesus saw him lying there and that guy had been in that condition for longer than some of us have even been alive and the words ringing in his ears are, you'll never walk again, and they've been ringing in his ears for how long? 38 years. Hey, you can be a little more enthusiastic than that, all right? 38 years. I mean, that's a long time. And Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? Back in December, someone backed into one of our cars. Information was exchanged. The appropriate phone calls were made. But a week later, I had not heard anything from the insurance company. So I called that person's insurance company, spoke with an agent. And one of the questions the agent asked me was, Mr. Tuttle, what do you want? I was a little stunned. I didn't answer right away. I actually looked at my phone. I said, I want my car fixed. <laughs> you know, the accident had been kicked to someone else, and they said, uh, so they'll be calling you on Monday. Well, Monday, I waited until 4.30, and then I called them, and after a little conversation, the new agent asked me this question. Mr. Tuttle, what do you want? And in my head, I'm thinking, a pony ride? Uh, an ice cream cone? Fortunately, I was able to maintain my super spiritual lead pastor persona when I said, I want my car fixed. I've been asked this question twice now. You're an insurance company. I don't know why this is a question. I was talking to a friend of mine who is familiar with the insurance industry who said, you'd be surprised what people want. One person sued an insurance company saying her car had been so hard, had been hit so hard, she lost her sex drive. I just want to say, I know what the guys in here are thinking. I mean, that'd have to be a fatal accident, right? Uh, 38 years. Do you want to get well? And Jesus told the invalid to get up and walk. He asked him, when he did that, he asked him to do something that this guy had not done for 38 
years. So let me ask you this question because this can be a barrier. What is it that's been in your life so long that it's not even really a consideration for you anymore? You don't even think about it. You, you don't ask God anything about it. It's just been there so long, it's just going to be there. In Mark Batterson's book, Grave Robber, he writes this, and it's on your notes. If you want change, if you want to change, you have to change the equation of your life by adding or subtracting something. You have to do something less, do something more, or do something different. 38 years can become a problem if we just get used to whatever it is. We stop asking God and stop expecting a miracle, and that can become a barrier in our life. But before we leave the story, I want to make sure you catch one more barrier that most likely uh, doesn't stand in your way today, but it might stand in the way of a family member or a friend of yours. Here's the barrier. This guy didn't even know who Jesus is. This guy didn't know who Jesus is. And I understand, I recognize some of you are already cringing. That is horrible English right there. I say it this way because this is an event in the past with someone who isn't. Jesus still is. Jesus wasn't. He still is. And so in verse 7, I say this because this guy calls Jesus sir. And in verse 13, we read that this man didn't know who Jesus was. Now, why do you suppose that was? How did he not know who Jesus was, is? Listen, in chapter 5, we're still kind of early in the, in the Gospel of John. Maybe this was Jesus' first miracle in Jerusalem. Remember, the first two happened in Cana. So maybe this is his first miracle in Jerusalem. But in John chapter 2, verse 22, in chapter 3, verse 2, and chapter 4, verse 45, we find out that not only had Jesus been in Jerusalem, but there are many people uh, who believe in Jesus because of the miraculous signs and the wonders he had been doing there. So this wasn't the first miracle there. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He has the ability to heal. And nobody told the people by the pool. Nobody told the people who desperately needed Jesus to heal their broken lives who Jesus is. Can you imagine the tragedy of that day? Wouldn't it be tragic if it happened in our day? Adam just mentioned Easter. It's five weeks away. I want to give you a big heads up. It's one of the two easiest times to invite your family and friends. People you know who don't know who you know. You know? Uh, so for all of us, our next step is to begin now to pray for your friend. Please write that down. Begin now to pray for, and then just leave a blank at the end of that, and you fill that blank in. Begin now to build a very intentional bridge that will help someone say yes when you ask them far enough in advance to do uh, on Easter weekend, to make room on Easter weekend to go somewhere they don't normally go, to hear about a guy they don't normally think about, to hear a story that could change their forever. Begin now to pray for them. Because you may be asking them to do something they haven't done in a very long time. Maybe they haven't done it for 38 years. Maybe they've never done it in their life. Because that day, that man met Jesus. And he was reminded of or found out for the first time, he really does matter to God. And Jesus changed his life forever. That could be the story your family member or friend who just doesn't know Jesus and hasn't heard much about him. Or maybe this morning it's you because you've met Jesus and you're ready for him to change your life. 
And I just want to say it begins with your commitment to him. The Bible says in the waters of baptism. This past week, we had a young man come over who said, I've been reading uh, the Bible and I think I'm supposed to be baptized. <laughs> and I sat down with him and I said, tell me what you've been reading. I said, and so Tuesday he came over and he was baptized. Next Sunday, we have a young lady who has been growing up in a Christian home and has watched those lives around her and has figured out she wants Jesus to be the Lord of her life as well. So next week, she's going to make that, that commitment to him in the water of baptism. I'm just wondering, is that you? Is that your next step? Because it begins with this prayer to God of a pure heart. And every week we come to a time of communion where we remember that. We remember that there was a day that Jesus looked at us and he said to us, do you want to be well? And on that day, we said yes. And so each week we remember because of the cross and because of the empty tomb, our lives are different today than they could have been because when Jesus asked us that, we said yes. So we remember every Sunday what Jesus did for us. And we will hold in our hand a cracker that reminds us of his body that was broken on the cross and a cup of juice that will remind us of his blood that was shed for our sins. And we remember and we examine ourselves. We go back to the day we said yes. We examine ourselves and how we've lived our lives this week. As Adam mentioned, worship is not about a Sunday thing. Worship is an every day of our life, how we live our life for God. And so we examine ourselves. And in this act, we honor the name of the one who continues to make us well. Let's go to him in prayer. God, thank you for this moment where we get to stop and just be reminded that there was a day you looked in our eyes as well. And you asked us, do you want to get well? And maybe for some of us, there were days and months, years that we had been asked that and we kept saying no, or we tried to avoid the question. We just answered another question like this guy did. But one day, there's something about that question that grabbed our hearts and wouldn't let go. And we said yes to you. And so, God, we pray that today as we remember that moment when we said yes to you and we think through our lives this past week and our lives that are to come this week, that our desire is to worship you, not just in this room for an hour, but to worship you with our lives, how we live our lives.